Well, good evening. This morning in our lesson, we talked about Ephesians chapter 2, and we talked about being saved by grace through faith, that that is not of our works, it's not of ourselves. Uh, We have no reason for boasting in this transaction. When we are saved, when uh, God has blessed us, when God makes us a new creation, at the end of our lives, we have only to give thanks. We have nothing in and of ourselves to boast about. When you look at boasting in uh, the New Testament, the only thing you really see Paul ever uh, advocate boasting in is his weakness and in the cross. You know, those are the, those are the areas wherein he can boast. But what God has done for us demonstrates his goodness, his grace, his love, his mercy, rather than our own goodness. But as we were going through the lesson, um, I occasionally would use uh, some baptismal language uh, as we were talking about Ephesians chapter 2, even though the word baptism isn't used in Ephesians chapter 2. And I don't want to uh, be guilty of trying to smuggle in baptism uh, into a passage that's not actually talking about baptism. And so what I wanted to do tonight was offer a brief explanation and perhaps a, a defense of why I think that it's, it's appropriate to read Ephesians 2 and to see baptism uh, in part of Paul's description and part of Paul's language. Uh, one of the reasons why I think this is important is because we, this morning, hopefully were emphatic and clear that you are not saved by your works. That tends to, in some people's minds, uh, create a, a bit of a conflict because one of the purposes of baptism throughout the New Testament is to bring about uh, forgiveness of sins, is to bring about the gift of the Holy Spirit, is to bring about salvation. Uh, you, you see that language used throughout the New Testament. And, and if that's the case, well, then wouldn't you be being saved by works if baptism is a work? And that, that final question, I think, or that final statement is where the controversy really lies. Uh, should you see baptism as a work of righteousness or a work of law or a work uh, to bring about salvation, or is perhaps baptism something else? If you have faith here in, ba- in works here, where is baptism along this spectrum? Is, is baptism in this category or is baptism in this category? Because if baptism is in the faith category, then perhaps we need to broaden our understanding of what faith is and, and recognize that it's not merely belief in something, but there's actually some perhaps even action required uh, as part of faith. In fact, one of the words that I used this morning when I talked about faith was the word allegiance. Uh, the, the Greek word uh, for faith is pistis. And one of the things that's really interesting about that word is it didn't originate in the New Testament and it didn't originate to talk about Jesus. Uh, that's a word that is, it was a common Greek word. It was used uh, in, in Greek writings and in uh, the Greek Greco-Roman literature of the day. And one of the ways that that word was used is it was used to talk about the gospel. Now, when I say gospel, you immediately think I'm talking about Jesus, but I'm actually making reference to a different gospel, uh, a gospel that was proclaimed by Rome. They proclaimed a gospel also. The word gospel wasn't always a Christian word. When Rome would talk about the gospel, they would talk about the good news of peace in the Roman Empire. They've conquered their enemies. They've brought about goodness. If you're a citizen of Rome or if you are under the umbrella of the Roman Empire, then you have protection, you have good roads, you have a powerful king. Like Those were a message that they considered to be gospel. And you know what word they often use to talk about the Caesar? They used words like Lord, kurios, which is a word that we use for Jesus. They also used words like Savior, soter, which is a word that we use for Jesus. Um, What's fascinating in the Bible is how often Roman political language, um, do you know what they would call the person who went and made public proclamations on behalf of the king? The karuks, you know, that's the Greek word. Uh, That's the word that's used in the New Testament that we translate as preacher. Like, the one who makes public proclamation on behalf of the king, Jesus, is the preacher. The message that he proclaims is gospel. Uh, And when you hear that message and you believe, you put your trust, you give your allegiance to that message and to that messenger, uh, then you are giving pistis, which is the Greek word that we translate as, as faith. So all of that is to say... When we say something like, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, uh, 
that's not necessarily the same as saying, um, I believe in the United States of America. It's also a way of saying, I'm, I'm, I'm pledging my allegiance. I'm, I'm not only do I believe in you, but I'm going to live within the laws of this country. I'm going to live in such a way that honors this country. That, that's kind of what, what's part of that. It's, it's a life-changing commitment to something. And if you're talking about allegiance to the Roman emperor, then that's what it's asking for, to you, you to be loyal to Rome and you to, to act on behalf of Rome's best interests and you to obey the laws of Rome. Well, if you believe in the kingdom of heaven, if you believe that Jesus is truly king and you're giving your pistis to him, you're giving your allegiance to him, then that's going to uh, impact your entire life. It's not merely a statement of a fact that you believe. It's actually a commitment of your life to, to following him. And I think that's largely what's involved in the, in the word pistis, in the word faith. And so when we talk about in Ephesians, you're saved by God's grace through faith. I think what he's talking about is when you give your allegiance to Jesus... Just like if you were to give your allegiance to Rome, there are going to be a lot of benefits. There are going to be good things that come your way from that. When you give your allegiance to King Jesus, there's going to be a lot of benefits that come with that. Uh, you're going to have salvation. Again, that's, that's language that's political, but it's also adopted by the early church to talk about the kingdom of heaven, uh, Jesus being king, and the salvation that we have in him. Only the, the a primary difference um, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks uh, about our citizenship being in heaven. Again, that's political language. Uh, the Roman Empire had a lot of Roman citizens, Paul was one, who didn't live in Rome. They lived in other cities throughout the ancient world. You know that They lived in other places. Paul was uh, from Tarsus, and yet he was a Roman citizen. Even though he was a citizen of the city, he lived elsewhere. Well, that's the imagery that Paul is using when he talks about us being citizens of heaven. That's where our king is enthroned. That's where our kingdom uh, is, is reigning, and we are living in that kingdom on earth, as earth as it is on earth as it is in heaven, and uh, and we are citizens on earth of a kingdom that is uh, that is with God in heaven. So, like, so much of the Bible, when you when you take a step back and you look at how some of the language is used uh, outside of the Bible, you come to realize that it's highly political, and that's one of the reasons why. You know, when Jesus was, was crucified, the, the plaque above his head said King of the Jews. That's a political statement, and that's the type of statement that can get you crucified. If you start saying there's a king other than Caesar, Rome's not going to like that. That's, that's historical fact, and that's one of the reasons why uh, Christianity was persecuted. It was because they would refuse to honor Caesar in the way that, that uh, others would. And, and so that's kind of a, a lengthy excursion, but the, the point of it is... In Ephesians, uh, when Paul uses that type of language, faith is not merely to say that uh, you've come to believe that Jesus existed, or you believe in God, or you even believe that Jesus died and rose from the grave, but you're actually giving your allegiance to him. And that might entail several things. Uh, one of the things that is important about baptism is that the way baptism is pictured in the New Testament it's never pictured as a work that you are called to do uh, or to engage in. In fact, the, the language of works is used for a lot of things in the Bible. It's not used of baptism. Baptism is often associated with faith, or baptism is associated with the work of God. And that's one of the reasons why the picture of baptism in the Bible is, is an important one. It illustrates something. Baptism is what you do when you're dead, and then you're buried in water. Um, dead people don't do a lot of works. Dead people don't accomplish a whole lot. Uh, dead people are dead. And when dead people are buried, uh, that's not them working. And if you raise a dead person from the, from the grave, that's not them working either. That's God working if a person's raised from the dead. And so in baptism, what you have the picture of... In, in, one of the things that was unique about Christian baptism, I think starting with John the Baptist, is you did have ritual uh, washings and even immersions within Judaism. You had mikvahs uh, or mikvaoth, which would uh, be surrounding uh, the temple. And when people would go there to offer their temple sacrifices, they would immerse themselves there. The priests had a massive laver uh, outside. Uh, the, I think it was uh, 
15 and a half cubits, uh, cubits uh, across and seven and a half cubits deep. And, and it was a large labor outside of the temple. And the priests would immerse themselves in that. But when John the Baptist comes along, he starts doing something that's unique. It's different than uh, people immersing themselves. And he gets a nickname because of it. John the Baptist comes along and he is immersing people. He is the one who is baptizing. And that was such a strange thing that people started naming him after that. Oh, that's John the guy who baptizes. That's John the Baptist. Uh, Most immersions that you saw up to that point were self-immersions, things that you did yourself. I think one of the reasons why it might be important that in, in New Testament, baptism is always administered by another person is because it again brings home the point that the dead person who's being buried and raised is not working. They are receiving something. Someone else is working. God is working. Someone else is baptizing them. But they are passive in the whole thing. In fact, every time uh, you see the, the command to be baptized, it is passive. You, you, you're not commanded to baptize yourself. You're commanded to be baptized because it's the reception of something. It's the receiving of something. It is uh, allowing something to happen to you. And so there are a number of reasons why Throughout the Bible, baptism is not placed in that work category. Baptism is much more strongly connected with faith. Baptism is something that uh, is, is done for you and done to you, and you receive it. Uh, baptism is something that is passive. It is something that happens to a dead person. In the same way that a dead person is buried, that's the picture of baptism. And so what I wanted to do is... Uh, Read a couple other passages where Paul talks about baptism with some of those thoughts in mind, and then go back to Ephesians and see why it is that I think Ephesians 2, uh, the early church reading that, they'd pick up on the baptism language. And people who are familiar with the writings of Paul would understand why he's using that type of baptism language, even if he doesn't use the word baptism in, in the context. And so uh, turn with me first to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We have a problem. If I tell you that you're saved by grace and it's not based on your works, what does that mean? Well, potentially, in some people's minds, it could mean, oh, okay, well, then uh, why do you have grace? Why do you need it? It's because of sin. So sin brings grace. So obviously sin's not that big of a deal if the thing that I need uh, is grace and that's what God has all, you know, all the grace in the world, then, then I could sin and then there would just be enough grace, right? So it's like, does grace mean that sin's not a big deal anymore? Or does that mean that the more I sin, the more grace I get? That's a question uh, that, that came apparently to the minds of some early Christians as they were hearing this idea about grace uh, washing away our sins and us not being saved by our works, but being saved by the goodness and the grace of God. And so in Romans 6, Paul wants to attack that idea because um, Paul's against it. He does not agree with that. He does not think, oh, okay, grace means sin's not a big deal. Sin is a very big deal. And sin is such a big deal that Jesus died on the cross to it. And, and sin is such a big deal that you need to die to it also. However, God's grace enables you to, through that death, become a new life that uh, no longer reaches back to that old world of sin into which you once lived. And so Paul's answer is not going to be, yeah, sin, because you have grace. He says, absolutely not in every possible way, no. That is the most emphatic no that Paul can give. Don't do that. Understand that if you're living a new life, Sin is completely incompatible with it. If you remember why you were baptized, then you know that sin isn't supposed to have any part of your new way of life. Like, it would be, it's it's illogical, it's paradoxical to think that I can live this new life in Christ and yet keep sin as a part of it. Uh, If you're thinking that way, then you don't understand your baptism. That's what Romans 6 is going to be talking about. His point isn't necessarily to tell people to be baptized. He's writing to people who are already baptized. He's writing to remind them of the significance of their baptism with respect to sin. Baptism means sin should not be a part of your life anymore. Obviously, you're still going to sin, and and that's not the direction we're we're going. I mean, you won't be perfect, but the idea is that there should be an emphatic change in your life, and baptism signifies that change. You should be able to see it at that moment. So in Romans chapter 6, we're going to see how Paul lays this argument out. Verse 1, he says, For what shall we say then? 
are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? You just keep on sinning to have more grace. Uh, in verse 2, uh, my translation says, may it never be. Uh, basically, that means biggest no ever in Greek. Like the harshest way you could possibly say no. That's what Paul is saying here. Uh, may it never be. For how shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Notice the language. He says, how shall we who have died to sin? When Paul talks about us being dead, what is he talking about? Well, if you keep reading, you'll, you'll get your answer. He says, or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So he's likening our baptism to the death of Jesus. And if you want, to, you want to enter into the death of Jesus, well, you do that through baptism. Baptism links you to the death of Jesus. Uh, and he said, you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, which is important language, and you've been baptized into his death. So that, uh, verse 4, or therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So you were buried with Jesus into his death. Uh, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we too might walk in newness of life. So in the same way that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised, we are connected to that and to where our baptism puts us into that saving death, in that saving burial. And then as Christ was raised, we also walk in a new life. You remember Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 when it says, For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, uh, for good works, that you should walk in them. The, the idea there is that you're a new creation. It's like you've been created in Christ. I think that's the same language here when he talks about this new life. Yeah, you had a life. It's not, it's not like you, you are becoming a baby again. You, know, you had a life, but now you have a new life. In that section, that period, that, that moment where you passed from your old life to your new life, there was a death and a burial and a resurrection that took place. And that's what your baptism was. So, so Paul very much links baptism to the gospel events of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying that that's what you're experiencing. That's why the Im immersion language of baptism, I think, is, is important. Um, it's why here, when we practice baptism, we do practice it by immersion. So that you can keep that picture of an actual burial and of being raised up to a new kind of life. And here's what happens in that, verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death... That's baptism. That's when, you were, that's when that happened. You were united with him in the likeness of his death. He just said that. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And I think that that's going to be um, kind of a, a twofold image there. Uh, we talked a little bit this morning about the idea of already, not yet. Are we raised up with Christ? There's a sense in which we are. In baptism is that being raised up with Christ. We'll, we'll see that again here in the next passage we look at. But there's also the sense in which we are ultimately uh, in the final and fullest way going to be raised up with Christ in the resurrection. And we're kind of in, in, in between raised up with Christ right now. Um, we were dead and we will have a final resurrection unto eternal life. But right now we've been raised up to a new life with Christ. But it's, it's a life where we still have hope of a greater resurrection to come. But as you continue through this passage, he says, if you were united in the likeness of his death, certainly you will also be in his resurrection. I think including now and then also, yes, in the age to come. And so verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. When did that happen? Baptism. He just told us. And so when, we were, when our old way of life, our old self was crucified with him uh, in order that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. And so keeping that language in mind that you died, you died to sin, you were a slave to sin, you've been freed from that way of life, all of this happened in your baptism, of course you shouldn't think, oh, so I can just sin all I want to have grace, right? 
Well, well, no. Otherwise, your baptism meant nothing to you. Otherwise, you've completely forgotten the purpose and the point of it. You forgot what dying with Jesus was all about. You forgot the new way of life that God is calling you towards. There's supposed to be an emphatic change that takes place in who you are. And so the language in Romans 6 of death and of burial and of resurrection is language that Paul is saying, even though you're alive and breathing and you've been alive and breathing since your birth, you have died. You have been buried. You have been raised to live a new type of life. And that's a life with Christ. And that's, that's the moment of baptism where that change happened. So don't go back to your old self. Don't let your old way of life rear its head in your new creation life. Start living towards heaven instead of living towards death, which is the life that you previously had. And so if you keep that language in mind, you'll see uh, verse, verse 10 through 12. I can't go through all of Romans 6 because we'll run out of time, but I want to look at a couple more verses in it. Uh, in Romans 10, he says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. So Jesus only had to die once, and he died uh, to sin, and as he was raised, he now lives to God. He says, if you, if you went through that with him through baptism, think the same thing. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Don't say, oh, I can sin to have grace. No, you're dead to sin. And you're alive now to God. So live for God. Therefore, verse 12, this is where he makes his conclusion. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its lusts. Uh, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as men, instruments of unrighteousness. Like, don't use your hands and your feet to accomplish sin. And don't use your eyes and your mouth to accomplish sin. Don't let sin reign within you and don't use your body for sin. You are a slave to something greater now. You are a slave to obedience which leads to righteousness, is the language that he'll use just in a couple of verses. You have transferred ownership. Uh, Everyone in the whole world is owned by someone. You're either owned by sin, which leads to death, or you're owned by obedience in the Lord Jesus, which, which leads to righteousness. He says baptism is where you were freed from one and became slave to the other, the one that leads to life. So choose your master, choose righteousness, choose the Lord Jesus, and have the life that he's offering you. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 6. Beautiful passage. The whole thing hinges on understanding that something important happened at baptism where you were dead, you were buried, you were raised up. And the gospel of Jesus becomes the picture of our salvation uh, through water, through baptism, through Christ uh, that, uh, that took place when we became believers. Uh, next, I want to look at a passage in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, we're going to see that Paul is a fan of this image. Uh, It is a helpful one for understanding uh, what takes place at baptism, and it's a helpful one for understanding uh, why I made some of the comments in Ephesians uh, the way that I did this morning. But in Colossians chapter 2, to understand the book of Colossians, um, there is some sort of problem, a heresy, that's floating around uh, at the church at Colossae. And it might not be accurate to call it a heresy. Maybe I should use the plural, there are heresies um, floating around. Uh, Because it doesn't seem like it's easy to define it as any one thing. As you read through the book and you try to look at all of the warnings about different ideas that Paul presents, it's not like it's just, say, people trying to bind circumcision. That may be some of it, but that doesn't seem to be all of it. Uh, and it might be um, asceticism, like the denial of the flesh. That seems to be a part of it, certainly. doesn't seem to be all of it. You see some people who are taking their stand on visions that they've seen. Uh, some people are worshiping angels. Some people, like You see like a lot of different ideas that are floating around. Uh, worshiping angels doesn't seem to be a... It's not like a Jewish idea. The Bible doesn't say to do that anywhere in the Old Testament or anything. And so you have a lot of different ideas. And Paul doesn't spend a lot of time dissecting each one and showing how they each are incorrect. He cuts uh, through that, which would be very time-consuming, to say, you know what, there's one point you need to know above anything else, and that'll solve all of these problems. Jesus is far greater than anything else in this whole world. 
Jesus is better than any other doctrine you've ever heard. Jesus is the only one who can bring about salvation. God is the only one who can qualify you and make you right. And he does that through Jesus. And so don't get caught up in all of these non-Jesus things that can pull you away from him. The things that look like self-made religion and the things that might have the appearance of wisdom, but they actually will bring you farther from Christ. Set your heart and your mind and your focus on Jesus. And that will answer all of these other things. Because, I mean, let's face it, we live in a pluralistic society where you could spend your time um, fighting against a million different directions that you might be being pulled philosophically or theologically, all, all sorts of ways. You could, you could, I mean, there's, there's strong secularism in our culture. There's strong um, uh, push towards asceticism in our culture. And some groups that you go to, you could be pulled towards Islam or you could be pulled towards, I mean, there, there's a lot of different competing worldviews. Well, the one that Christians need to hold on to is the one that is preeminent over them all, which is Jesus. And so that's, that's the logic of the book of Colossians. He's going to try to show that Jesus is greater than any of these other ideas that could pull you away from him. So uh, we're not going to be able to do a full uh, detail of the book. But if you look at chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. There are arguments out there that are non-Jesus arguments, and they can be persuasive sometimes. Uh, Sometimes they can sound pretty good. But if you grasp the greatness of Jesus, he's more persuasive than even the most persuasive argument. And then he goes on uh, in verse 6. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So notice he's saying, so, so you have received Jesus already. So walk in him, be rooted in him, be established in him, be built up in him. I mean, that's like the, the language of a tree. It has its deep root, and then it has its firm base, and then it's able to build up. Or, or a building that has its strong foundation, and you build up on it. He says, let that happen with Christ. Don't go digging up your roots. You know, Grow and, and be built up in that. He says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deception, according to the tradition of men or according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. Again, there's a lot of philosophies out there. There's a lot of traditions. There's a lot of worldviews. There's a lot of ideas. Don't be taken captive by any of those. If you're going to be taken captive by a philosophy, let it be Christ's. Don't be taken captive by anything rather than Christ is how he finishes that. And so if you hear that, you might think, okay, but why? Why Jesus? And what he begins to do in verse 9 of chapter 2 is show why Jesus is the one you should be taken captive by. If you're going to be taken captive by ideology, let it be the ideology of Jesus because, verse 9, for or because in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So that's not true of anyone else. Uh, All of God like Jesus is a hundred percent God. Uh, uh, that's not to say that that you know it's not to deny the Trinity or anything, but but it's th- to say that Jesus is fully and completely God. He is man, but he is also God. The fullness of deity dwells in him. Um, there is uh, the, the word fullness there. The Greek word pleroma uh, in Greek. Uh, uh, language and in ideas um, is often a word that's used simply to mean like the whole spiritual realm, all of the gods, it's the fullness, everything. And Paul adopts that word to say that no, all that really is God, you can find in Jesus. The fullness dwells in him, even in bodily form. So that's one reason you should listen to Jesus above everyone else. Verse 10, he gives another reason. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. That, that's, we saw that language this morning in Ephesians 2. But he's saying, look, all f- the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. Jesus made you complete, which nobody else can do. Jesus is the head over all the rulers and authorities of this world. So don't listen to them. Uh, listen to him. And then finally, verse 11. And, and this is another reason why listen to Jesus, not anyone else. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands 
Well, that's a strange idea. How are you circumcised without hands? I'm not a, you know, a doctor, but I'm pretty sure uh, for most circumcisions to take place, the, the hand and the scalpel are a part of that. Um, he says, you've been circumcised without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of, of Christ. Um, or, or some translations, I think, help us out with that meaning. Basically, by the removal of the, the body of sin by the circumcision of Christ. Christ performed a circumcision on you where you had your sins removed from your body as opposed to just a piece of flesh. Uh, he changed you in that way. And, and that's that, by the way, if someone is demanding circumcision and saying, oh, you Gentiles need to be circumcised, so they can say, well, I was. But circumcised by Christ without hands. Uh, and so, well, when did that happen? When were you circumcised by Jesus without hands? Verse 12 is where you get your description. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so he, he, uh, Paul has a tendency sometimes, and it can get confusing, uh, to lay image after image on top of each other. He starts off with the image of circumcision, saying Christ circumcised you by cutting away the sin from your flesh. How did he do that? Well, he did that by baptism. And then he adds to that the image that we saw earlier from Romans 6 of of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And notice as we go through this passage how often he's going to say this is something we did with him, with Christ. We were not alone when we were baptized. We were baptized with him. We were buried with him. We were raised up with him. This is us and Jesus coming together. And, And so when you look at verse 12, he says, you were buried with him in baptism. All right, we, we saw that exact phrase used in Romans 6. Uh, when he talks about us being buried, that's baptism language. And then when he says, you were also raised up with him. When you come out of the water, it's a picture of the resurrection. So just like Jesus was raised from the tomb, you were raised to live in newness of life or to become a new creation in Ephesians 2.10. And then notice the language of verse 12. You were raised up with him through faith. In the working of God. So you were raised up. And what what category does he put your baptism in? Is it your work? No. He puts it in your faith. And your faith is in whose work? The work of God. So who performed the circumcision? It was God. Who made you alive? It was God. Who raised you up? It was God. God is the one who was working and making you alive and cutting away your sins. It is not a work that you do. You are passive. You do nothing in the process. You, you allow something to be done to you. You allow somebody else to put you under and to pull you up. And as you are raised up, God is the one giving you new life, taking away your sin, and doing the work on you. That's why it's passive. and That's why it's an important image that baptism is not you in any way earning or meriting your salvation. So I don't think Paul, Paul never tries to clarify that because I, I don't think anyone was, was thinking that. They, they weren't having the debates about baptism that we often have. And so Paul can just use this language. And I don't think there are many people who would see baptism and think, ah, oh, that guy's trying to earn heaven. I, that's just not the picture of baptism. It's not what it looks like, and it's not what uh, the New Testament says about it. And so when Paul describes baptism, he, without issue, describes it as the work of God and describes it as an act of faith on our part. Uh, it is something wherein God is making us alive. We're not making ourselves alive. God is doing that work. And so verse 13, he's going to, uh, to dive deeper into this idea. He says, when you were dead, all right, so if someone's reading this and they're alive, uh, what does it mean you were dead? It can't be literal, right? Uh, I, I think what his meaning is when, when you were in that state prior to baptism, when, before you were made alive, before you were raised up with Christ, what were you? You were dead. That's why you were buried. Dead people are buried. Uh, and so you were dead. He says, in the transgression and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. So there he uses the language of the uncircumcision too. Remember, Christ circumcised you when you were baptized. So prior to that, you were uncircumcised, just covered in your sins and fully, uh, fully surrounded by your sin. It says, then he made you alive together with him. When did he do that? Well, when you were buried with him, 
When you were raised with him, he made you alive with him. And he said, so this is, verse 13 is going to give a, and 14 is going to give a description of what God did for you when you were baptized. You were buried with him. You were raised with him. You were made alive with him. And here's how he made you alive. Verse 13 says, having forgiven all of your transgressions. That's one way he made you alive. He forgave all of your sins and all of your transgressions. Verse 14 continues. And, and in Greek, there's a, this is just a list of participles that follow the description, he made you alive. And so I'll try to point them out. Uh, it, they're harder to see in English sometimes, but it's just a list. God did this and this and this and this and this when, when he made you alive. He forgave all your transgressions. 14. He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. So we had a debt incurred that God canceled out. He took it out of the way. You know what he did with that debt? He nailed it to the cross. Verse uh, 14. Having taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Remember, the rulers and authorities that Jesus is, is over and greater than, he disarmed them. Well, what were they armed with? They were armed with your debt and with your sin. They could hold that against you forever. And like, imagine Satan holding up a list of all of the sinful things you've ever done, all of your misdeeds, all of your transgressions, all of your debt that you owe. And Jesus, uh, God, grabs it, takes it from his hand, walks over to the cross, nails it on there, and your debt was removed from them. So now they're standing there with nothing against you. And you know what? The rulers and the powers and the authorities, they look foolish. They've been disarmed. So, verse 15, having uh, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him or through Jesus. When you were baptized, a lot was happening. Uh, God was making you alive by forgiving your sins, canceling out your debt, nailing it to the cross, disarming the rulers and the authorities of the world, and making a public display of them, triumphing over them. So if all of that happened for you through Jesus, then why in the world would you listen to another philosophy that is coming to try to pull you away from him? No other worldview is doing that for you. No other idea is doing that for you. So verse 16, therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day. These are, these are some Jewish ideas. He's saying, don't let them be your judge. God's the one who's your judge. Jesus is the one who made you right. So listen to him. And then verse 18. Let no one defraud you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement or the worship of angels or taking a stand on visions he has seen. Like these other ideas, don't listen to them. Don't let them disqualify you or don't, don't let them judge you or think that you're wrong because of them. If you have Jesus, stick with him. He's the one who has done all of that for you. He's the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. He's the one who made you complete. He's the one who's the head over all rule and authority. And he's the one who cut away your sins and made you alive through baptism. So listen to him. So verse 20 of chapter 2, he's going to go back to this idea. So if you died with Christ, when do you think that happened? Well, if we've been reading Colossians 2, we know that language already. That's baptism language. If you died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why? As if you were still living in the world, are you submitting yourself to these non-Jesus decrees? Like, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These things, they might have the appearance of wisdom, but they are referring to things that will perish. They are self-made religion. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 1, he's just going to keep the argument coming. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ... Well, when did that happen? What language is that? That's baptism language. If you've been raised up with Christ, then keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. Verse 3, for you have died. Well, when did that happen? I mean, if you died, what, what moment is Paul talking about where you died? I think he's talking about when you died and were buried and were raised. I mean, he's, he's already said that. Uh, if, you've, if you've read Romans 6, you know that he talks about baptism that way. If you read chapter 2 where he talks about it, you know that's his language. That's his way of talking about baptism. When you died, when you were buried with him, and when you were raised with him. That's baptism language. And so, verse 5, he, he continues, So consider the members of your earthly body dead. 
two, and he names a bunch of sins. That's Romans 6 right there. Like, so don't consider your bodies as, as instruments of unrighteousness, but as instruments of righteousness. Change the way you use your body and use it for good instead of evil. I mean, that's the same thing that he's saying right here. If you look at verse, um, uh, let's see, verse 8. But now you also... Put them all away. Remember when we talked about putting away the old self in Romans 6? Put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. When did you lay aside the old self? That's baptism language. That, that, we saw that already. He says in verse 10, and have put on the new self. Well, again, you're a new creation created in Christ Jesus. The old, the old man was done away with Romans 6. Right here, he's using that exact same language after explicitly mentioning baptism to say you're, like you died, but you're raised to become a new person, a new self. So don't grab the stuff of the old self. You are a new self in verse 10. You have put on the, uh, the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is and this is really important, verse 11. No distinction between Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and, but Christ uh, is all and in all. Notice the language right there of uh, all different walks of life becoming one in Christ. There's now no distinction. Why? Because you've all put off the old self and put on the new self. That's baptism language. You want to know other places where Paul makes that type of statement right there? I can think of one in Galatians 3. Uh, Galatians 3, 26. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You're a son of God through faith because as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there's no difference. Uh, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. He he makes almost the same type of verse in Galatians 3 when he says, you're a son of God through faith because you've been baptized. So there aren't these distinctions anymore. You've become one. He makes the same point here in Colossians after he's talking about baptism. And by the way, that's all the same thing that he's doing in Ephesians 2. Uh, so let's, let's turn to Ephesians 2. And we, we could keep going with, with each of these passages. Uh, but, uh, but turn with me back to Ephesians. Uh, we'll start in, in chapter 1, actually. Uh, but in Ephesians chapter 1, I want to add one other idea to this uh, before we bring the lesson to a close. But in verse 13, he says, In him you also... After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Just a couple of things. One, that in him language is important. Um, I, I can think of a couple, I can think of a lot of places in the Bible where it talks about being in him or being sealed in him or different things happening in him. But there are only a few where it talks about how you get in him. One of them is Romans 6 that we read earlier. You were baptized into Christ. Uh, For if you have been baptized into Christ. And the other is in Galatians chapter 3, the passage I quoted a second ago, that said, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of us have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So the the idea of being baptized into Christ is the language of of how you become in Christ, how you be in Christ. Um, And so in Ephesians, He says, you heard the message of truth, you believed it, and then you were sealed in him. Now, uh, that word sealed right there, uh, the idea of, of, you know, a king putting his signet ring, his seal on someone, taking ownership of something. Um, But one thing that's really interesting, and it's at least um, worthy of consideration, in the second century uh, A.D., after the, the New Testament was done, we have quite a few early Christian writings. Um, we have writings from uh, someone named Clement of Rome, and we have writings of uh, a, a, a book called The Acts of Thomas, and we have an, a book called The Acts of Paul and Thecla, and there's, there's, there's a lot of other ones also. But you know what those three have in common? And there are others also. There's just three that I quickly mentioned that are all second century writings that talk this way. Do you know how they talk about baptism? They talk about baptism by calling it the seal. Uh, can I receive the seal? Uh, you know, has someone received? And, and this word that Paul uses for you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit becomes 
baptism language. That's how people read it, and that's how people use it. That becomes a popular way to talk about baptism. And so one thing that it's difficult to be completely certain of is whether or not when Paul's... Is it anachronistic to read that and to think, okay, so, so I'm going to take that definition and put it into Paul's writings? Maybe it is. Maybe that's not what exactly Paul means by that. Or it's possible that thinking of baptism as that seal starts pretty early on, and it just continues from Paul's writings. Because if you were reading, you hear, you believe, and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, uh, kind of sounds like the progression that people undergo when they hear and they believe it and are baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, so, and so that certainly is how later Christians took it. Um, it but it is difficult to know being honest, with complete certainty, does Paul have the word baptism in his mind when he's using that word sealed right there? We don't know, but we know very soon after this, that is the way that people thought about it. But um, anyway, he says that you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge or the, 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 uh, the earnest of our inheritance uh, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Uh, but then we, you keep reading down, if you get to chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, um, when he's talking about the uh, transformation that takes place from death to life, notice how similar his language is going to be to what we've read about in these other very clearly baptismal texts. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So if we know Paul's writing this, what does Paul mean by that? In pretty much every other place where he talks about it, what is he talking about? That, that period of life before you became a Christian, that period of life prior to baptism. He says, you were dead, in which, verse 2, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, in, uh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even, even as everyone else. But... God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. When did he make you alive with him or with Christ? Where have we seen that language before? In, in his baptism texts. And so I think he's using the same language here. And again, he doesn't use the word baptism, but I do think Anyone in the first century, certainly, who's reading this knows what he's talking about. When was I dead? They're not, they know what that means. And when was I raised with Christ? They know what that means. Uh, that we, like, when else could you have said you were raised with Christ? Uh, when were you raised up? <laughs> That's baptism language. And so he says, uh, you were dead. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him. So when were you raised up with him? Again, that's, that's Paul's code language to talk about when you were united with him through baptism into his death and burial and resurrection. He made us alive with Christ, uh, and then he seated us in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. So then he moves on from that to get to verse 10, where we, he starts talking about that new self that you are. You know, after Paul talks about being dead, being buried with him, and being raised with him, he then starts to talk about the new self that you become. And that's what he does here. For we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. And then you know how he often finishes that by saying, so there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Well, you keep reading. Um, he talks to the Gentiles in verse 11. You uh, remember that you formerly were Gentiles in the flesh. You were the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. All right, we kind of saw that language uh, earlier. Like there's the literal circumcision that he's been talking about. And he talks about that they were separated, they were excluded. But if you get to verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he, uh, he himself is our peace who made both groups into one. He made them both into one group. There's no Jew or Gentile, slave and free, male and free, male, but all are one in Christ Jesus. That's the same language. He's, he's just ex expounding on it a little bit further in, in Ephesians 2. But you see he's following the same pattern of, of, 
explanation here. Uh, he did it by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. This is verse 15, the second half of it. So that in himself, in him, he might make the two into one new man. Where have we seen the idea of it becoming a new man? Again, in, in the passages that we just read. Uh, Thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross. So I think one of the reasons, perhaps, that Paul doesn't use explicitly language to talk about the word baptism is because I do think in Ephesians 2, his focus is less on the individual and more on the, the body as a whole, as he is throughout all of Ephesians. It's very focused on the church. And the church was, these people were alienated, but they've been brought near. They've become one. They have been justified by, uh, by uh, his grace. They've been loved. They've had mercy to where they are now one new man. They are now one group. And, uh, and so he uses that language. But he does, actually, if you keep reading Ephesians, he will talk about one baptism in chapter 4. But then when you get to chapter 5, and we'll close by looking at this, I think he does make a reference to baptism for the collective church as a whole. Uh, we, we often think of it as an individual thing, but if all the individuals do it in the church, what does that mean about the whole church? The whole church has been washed, right? Uh, and so in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse uh, 25, he's talking about husbands' love for their wives, but he likens it to, to Christ in the church. And he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water by the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So baptism is something that individuals uh, go through, but Ephesians has much less of an individual focus and more of a collective community focus, a church-wide focus. And when he talks about baptism, he talks about it, uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. He talks about one body. Uh, in, in Ephesians 2, I think he's talking about how God, through cleansing us, made us uh, one new man. Whether you were Jew or Gentile or whatever you were, you are now one in Christ. And uh, in Ephesians 5, he describes that washing with water that makes the church glorious and beautiful and pristine and perfectly prepared for God. Uh, and so all of that is, is the same type of language. And that's one of the reasons why uh, when I talked about Ephesians 2, I, uh, I think you're justified in, in using that buried with him, raised with him language, and that being a picture of what you experienced when you were buried in water and raised up out of the water through baptism into Christ. Um, so as we bring our lesson to a close, uh, I hope that that uh, is, is helpful in your study. But also, if there's anyone here tonight who you're looking at your life and you're wanting to grow in your walk with Christ, or you're wanting to begin your walk with Christ, or you're wanting to make things right with Jesus and you're looking at what you ought to do, if there's anyone here who has the need to be baptized, to be cleansed, to be uh, made holy and right, and to be buried with Christ and raised up with Christ, we pray that you would let that be known that you would let us know that you would come sit on the front row uh, while we stand and as we sing.